scripture, would you recite with me the Shema? Let's pray uh, this ancient prayer together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Our scripture passage this morning is from the 26th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. It is the story of the woman anointing Jesus. You can find a similar story in all four of the Gospels. They differ by geographic location, by location in the Gospel narrative, and by the identity of the woman. But all four stories make one similar point. And that is that Jesus is the Messiah. They are all clear on Jesus's identity, much like the crowds who greet Jesus as he enters Jerusalem with palms, much like the children this morning. These stories say Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, The first 16 verses from the 26th chapter is what we will hear. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. When I was a freshman in college, I was invited to come and interview to be a sweetheart for the Christian fraternity on campus. I didn't make it. I didn't get it. And if I were to give the microphone to my own sweetheart right now. If Keith were here, he might tell you, well, she's not as sweet as she looks. (laughs) And that's true. But those guys in 1988, they didn't know me that well. And at the time, my friend in the fraternity, the one who put my name up, uh, met me for coffee to deliver the bad news to me. And he said, Dinah, man, you bombed a question. Remember when you were asked, what's the most important relationship in your life? Do you remember what you said? You know, he asked me like I had embarrassed him. Oh, yes, I said. I remember what I said. I said, my parents, my family. Uh Uh-huh, he said. 
that's not the right answer. The right answer is Jesus. Duh. I've been to enough children's sermons to know that the right answer is always Jesus. Why didn't I recognize the trap? In Matthew's gospel, just before the Passover, where Jesus will be handed over and crucified, he's at the home of Simon the leper and a woman with an extravagantly generous offering, costly perfume to anoint, takes that offering and she pours that offering on Jesus's head. And Jesus says that her actions prepare his body for burial. He praises the woman on two counts. First of all, he says, she's done a beautiful thing to me. And the second thing is that he says, whenever this gospel is told, whenever the good news is told throughout the world, what she has done will also be told as well. So closely linked are her actions to the very good news. My spiritual director, Janet Davis, she's also a writer, and she points out in her writing on this Bible story that only twice in Matthew's gospel does Jesus project a moment into the life of the yet-to-be-born church. So he takes a moment that he shares with his disciples, and he marks it as so significant that he says this will be remembered. It happens only twice in the gospel of Matthew at, at this moment the anointing by the woman in Bethany, and the other is a conversation that Jesus has with Peter. It's in chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel. Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. But by my Father in heaven, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not overcome it. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, I don't know about you, but that almost sounds like an overreaction to me. Peter gives what sounds like a solid answer. It's a decent answer. And he gets the highest praise, along with the keys to the kingdom. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Richard Rohr reminded me this week in his email devotional that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means the anointed one. That's why in prayer and in liturgy, you will often hear your pastors say, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one. The exemplary answer that Peter gives, the, the key to the kingdom, the memory that gets projected into the future church, into the future believing community is an understanding that Jesus is, in fact, the anointed one. Peter says it. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. The woman at Bethany says nothing that gets recorded. 
but she actually does the anointing. She acts. She gives us an image. She gives us a picture of Jesus' identity, of who Jesus really is. The thing that is important for the faithful to remember, the very thing that Matthew's Jesus wants us to know both in our heart and in our head is that Jesus is the anointed one. And I'm reminded when I hold these two stories up together that what I say about Jesus is significant, it's important, but what I do about Jesus is of equal significance. Do I, by the very way that I live, the very way that I spend my time, reveal the beauty of Christ? I've been doing some thinking this week about beauty, what exactly qualifies as beautiful. And you can imagine that beauty is a topic that's popular on TED Talks. There's one philosopher by the name of Dennis Dutton who says that we are all hardwired for beauty, that it's deep within us to recognize what is beautiful. And he says that this is evidenced by the fact that those things that we say are beautiful travel with some ease across boundaries of culture. So things like Beethoven and Shakespeare, American jazz can all be appreciated by cultures different from the culture where they originated. Daniel and I were in our pediatrician's office this week and we noticed photos of African animals taken on safari hanging on the wall in our pediatrician's office, and they were beautiful photos and beautiful animals. Dutton claims that we all have a permanent innate taste for something that's done well, for virtuoso. And then I watched a TED Talk by a guy named Richard Seymour. He's a designer, an engineer, and he went on and on about the beauty of an F1 MV Augusta. Do you know what that is? I have a picture of it. Yeah, that. Exquisite, he said, as his eyes teared up. (laughs) Seymour gave many details about the beautiful design, and at first, I have to admit, I just didn't see it. But as he gave me some more detail about the exquisite engineering, the thoughtful engineering, I began to get it. I don't want one of those, but the information that he gave me about the achievements of the design gave me an appreciation for why it might stir some emotion in somebody that looks at a picture or the actual motorcycle and says, that's beautiful. One of the things that Seymour teaches about beauty is that it has a feeling associated with it. So when we see something that's beautiful or we recognize something that's beautiful, it stirs a feeling within us. We don't just think beauty, but we feel beauty. It triggers a a, a physiological response in us. And the example that he uses to teach this is an example of a flower and a butterfly. Can you see that image? Do you think it's beautiful? You probably don't think much of it when you first look at it. But let me tell you a little bit about it. That picture was done by a little girl named Heidi, five years old, 
and when she was five years old, she died of cancer of the spine. This was the very last thing that she did before she died. She drew this picture. So look at the picture again. Do you see the innocence? Do you see the beauty in it? And do you experience that feeling within yourself? True beauty has these qualities both of triumph and compassion. Theologian N.T. Wright says that beauty appeals to feelings that are deep within us, but it also calls us outside of ourselves. He writes that creating beauty is one of the five things that we do just to celebrate life. The other four things are we tell stories, we act out rituals, we work in communities, we think out beliefs. So we do those five things to honor and to celebrate both the simplicity and the complexity of life, and we do them most days. So think about an evening, a typical evening in your home. Does it look like you come home from a day's work? You tell the people that you live with a story or two about what happened during the day. You might watch some more stories on television. You go through the ritual of cooking a meal, setting the table, maybe arranging a bunch of flowers, cleaning up a room, doing laundry, and maybe from time to time, Maybe once every other week, you talk about the meaning of it all. So creating beauty is one of the things that we do to celebrate life. Jesus says of the woman pouring anointing oil on his head that she's done a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing to me, he says. Other translations of this verse say she's done a good work. For me, or she's done a good service to me. Ancient rabbis discussed that there were two kinds of good works money to the poor and burying the dead. So, burying the dead was given priority by most rabbis because it could only be done at the required time, which, as near as I can tell, is always at an inconvenient time, right? People don't die when I want them to die on my calendar, right? Tending to the dead involves personal service that is sacrificial. It's out of our control. So when Jesus says to the disciples who are around him, the poor will always be with you, it's not a cynical statement as we sometimes hear preached, but it's a recognition that giving to the poor is ongoing for us. It's a part of the routine of our lives but tending to the dead is the higher priority. It's the more beautiful because it requires sacrificial service on our part. It requires a higher degree of flexible generosity. We have to stop what we're doing and tend to the person, the family, who has lost someone to death. Theologian Cynthia Bourgeau says that we can learn about the Christian practice of anointing by considering the story of Jesus' anointing and getting that the setting is in relationship, that it's generous, extravagant love, and essentially anointing is about dying before you die. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Jesus said that. 
We are anointed in the safe setting of love to let go and to give and to serve others when it's inconvenient for us, when it's painful, even when others betray us. If I could go back in time 30 years ago to 1988, it's hard to believe, I would tell that very nice young Christian man about the doctrine of the incarnation. It's hard for me to imagine my 18-year-old self talking about the doctrine of the incarnation, but that's what I'd say. I would say incarnation means that God is present in the world with us. And there are three times that we see the doctrine of incarnation in creation, in the life and the story of Jesus, and then in the body of Christ, in the community of believers, in you and in me, in me. And I'd tell him that incarnation well done always involves self-sacrifice, making space for the other. And I'd say that it's best practiced in families because... Darn it, the degree of difficulty is so high in families. Anytime I honor another or I sacrifice for another person, that pleases Jesus. And I think my 18-year-old self would say, duh, it pleases Jesus because it follows Jesus' example of self-giving love. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, God anointed us. God anointed all of us. And Eugene Peterson rewrote this line of scripture by saying, we are all stamped with the yes of Jesus. We are all stamped with the yes of Jesus. God affirms us, making us a sure thing in Christ, putting God's yes in us. God's yes is in you, and God's yes is in me. And it really is a beautiful thing.